0: Welcome to another Macquarie Life Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. It's, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you about a topic that I'm passionate about, and thank you, Ross for the opportunity, uh, God and science. And I'm going to look at two aspects tonight, and, and hopefully you'll end up in a better place, especially young folks going to uni than I was. So maybe you'll get a little bit of equipping. Um, the first aspect is, God and science, are they friends or foes? And uh, the atheists would say they are definitely foes, but we'll, we'll tackle that. And the second uh, question is, does cosmology prove there is a God? It's, for some of you, that's an unusual term. Uh, it's really just the study of the origins and the development of our universe, something which I've been passionate about for a long time. Now, in the spirit of open disclosure, I need to say I'm coming from a Christian world perspective. I'm a Christian. I believe in a personal God. I believe that he, from nothing, created the universe, and he exists before time and space, and he upholds and sustains the universe. And I'm a scientist, and uh, I've got a doctorate in science, and it's not in cosmology. Probably should have done cosmology. It's in infectious diseases. And uh, my doctorate was in in novel methods of detecting and preventing infectious diseases. But for a long time, I've studied cosmology. It's a real passion of mine for probably about 33 years now. Some of that through university and some just because I can't help myself. Um, Now, look, I need to thank NASA, um, (laughs) who spent $10 billion getting me some of the pictures I'm going to use tonight. Um, they come from the James Webb Telescope, and they are all less than three, three and a half months old. And the first one is just spectacular. So that, for those of you who haven't seen it, is a nebula. It's called the Carina Nebulae. A nebulae is just simply a birthplace of stars. It's a star nursery. And you'll see that marvellous cosmic... Cliffs, which is just a differentiation between gas and between uh, cosmic dust. And I think at least part of this is working. Ha-ha. And every single one of those little blips is a brand new baby star, which is very cute (laughs) if if you find baby stars very cute. Obviously, they'd burn you up if you got too close to them. Now... That is seven and a half thousand light years away, all right? And the Webb telescope is amazing. It take, it's taking the very best images we've ever had of space because they shot this thing a mil, one and a half million kilometres away from us. It's beyond our moon. It's six and a half metres in diameter. It's covered in gold. And this is why it cost $10 billion. And it's perfect. It's perfectly placed to capture infrared radiation from the very depths of our universe, which is just spectacular. So, oh, I'm going to throw a few big numbers at you. So just hang in there. A light year is the distance that light travels in one year, and that's 9 trillion kilometres. So that's 9 times 10 to the 12. That's a long way. This is seven. And a half thousand light years away. That's a very long way away. Now I'll try and make those numbers as simple as possible. Let's have the next slide please. I got caught out when I went to, to university. Um, oh, we've got a different slide. That's okay, we can use this one. And got caught in a debate And there's a lovely verse from 1 Peter that says we should have the strength of our evidence so that we can defend our faith, but that we should, critically important, we should defend it with grace, with gentleness and respect. Now, as an arrogant medical student in my first year, we had a botany lab and a very smart associate professor presented Uh, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution and as an arrogant medical student I decided I didn't like this and I came up with my very quite trite afterwards realized just how trite and flippant my arguments were about the geological record and the fossil record and and the problems with carbon dating and and she was tearing me to strips and I played my trump card I thought and my trump card was well look my god could actually have made the universe to look much older than it was. I hope you don't play that trump card. Because she then said to me an interesting thing. She was offering constant. And she said, oh, so your God is bedrichlich. Now, I'm not going to ask you to, to interpret that. So your God is deceptive. Oh, gee, that floored me. And it set me on a journey where I realized I didn't really know the strength, the evidence behind my faith. And it set me on a long journey. 33 years later, I'm still studying science to make sure that I understand, when I speak to people who've got a science background, what they really understand. There's a wonderful warning, and I wish I'd had this warning beforehand. Oh, well done. There's the verse from St. Augustine of Hippo. And he was actually a scoundrel. If you read his history, he was a bit of a pub crawler in his day. He lived 300 years after Jesus. But he was radically saved, and he became one of what they call the church fathers. He's quite an extraordinary guy. But except for his reference to pre-Christians as infidels, which we'll excuse him for, it was okay in those times, have a look at what he said. It's disgraceful and dangerous for an infidel, a pre-Christian, to hear a Christian presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture, talking nonsense on scientific topics. Ouch. If they find a Christian mistaken in a field which they themselves know well and him maintaining foolish opinions about our book, the Bible, how are they going to believe the Bible and matters concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, and the kingdom of heaven? So we've got to be really careful. We've got to really be careful that when we're speaking to people, that we respect their knowledge and that we don't talk nonsense. Because then if we claim that our nonsense is based on the word of God, they're not going to believe any of the truths in the word of God. So that was a really important warning to me, and maybe it'll be helpful to you. So I dived into science. And the next slide, please. And you see this. That's a hairstyle that's gone a bit out of fashion. So that is probably the greatest scientist that ever lived, Sir Isaac Newton. Um, Some of you will hate him. He was 20 when he developed the theory of calculus. Didn't learn it. He developed it. Heaven help us. But he was quite an amazing bloke. He also developed the whole theory of gravitation, one of the great theories in the whole of science. And Isaac Newton, interestingly, was an absolutely passionate Christian. In fact, he wrote more about his theology than he wrote about his science, and he wrote an awful lot about his science. And it's interesting because if you go back into the roots of our science, all the great scientists, almost exclusively, were Christians. And C.S. Lewis looked at this lot and he said, why? And he came up with this wonderful quote, man became scientific because he expected law in nature Because there was a lawgiver. So we, science didn't flourish in the East. It never took off in China and in Asia. The arts did, culture did, music did, not science. Because the order and the pattern, because there was a creator, was recognised by Christians, which is just astounding. The next slide, please. So... Ah, the slides are a little bit out of sync, but that's okay. So Francis Bacon. Now, that's a a wonderful name, and some of you will remember that Francis Bacon actually developed the whole basis for scientific thought. And what that is is effectively you make observation, you make a hypothesis to explain it, you then put it to an experiment, you repeat the experiment and then you say, oh, it's factual, until somebody else comes with their hypothesis and, and unravels yours, okay? And Francis Bacon was had very interesting things to say because he said God has revealed himself in two books. The one book, Holy Scripture, Special Revelation, and the other book, General Revelation, is The Record of Nature. And he was convinced that God had used two books to reveal himself to us, to humans, which is pretty good. Now, I agree completely with that. I think that Francis Bacon was absolutely right. But actually Francis Bacon and myself both plagiarized David the psalmist because he actually nailed it in Psalm 19 beautifully. If you go to Psalm 19, you'll see that David says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. So nature's there, it's shouting at us, God's glory. And then if you go on to verse uh, 7, it says, and the law of the Lord, or the scriptures, are perfect, they refresh the soul, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. God, David thought, had revealed himself both in nature and in his word. Now, I'm going to take you on a little logic trip. If that is correct, if Francis Bacon and your, my humble self and the psalmist David were right, that God revealed himself through two books, there's, let's go to the next slide. There's a little bit of logic. If God is all truthful, and we believe that, and God is unchanging, he's immutable, and God revealed himself in two books, Nature and the Bible, then the truth in both books has to be absolutely trustworthy and true. And the two books have to, in areas where they overlap in their scope, they have to say the same thing. They need to support each other. And in areas where they have different scope, they need to complement each other. So nature, the record of nature and the record of the gospel, cannot be in conflict because then God is not truthful. Wow. Just a simple couple of steps of logic. So the next slide, please. Why then is there this age-old conflict between the church and science? Because, not because there's a conflict between God and science, but because the people who interpret the scripture are theologians and the people who interpret the, the, the record in nature are scientists and they get it wrong. No, but theologians never get it wrong. Yes, they do. Scientists, they never get it wrong. Yes, they do. I'll give you two examples. This is probably the most famous example of where the church got it wrong. And this is Galileo Galilei. This goes back a little while and he was an amazing scientist. He was the first person who really made good use of a telescope. He didn't invent the telescope but he made really good use of it. And one of the things that he saw at that stage, the dogma in science and in the church, in science and in the church, was that the earth was the centre of the universe and that everything rotated around it, Okay. But he pointed his telescope to Jupiter and he saw things moving around Jupiter. He saw four of Jupiter's moons and he said, hang on a moment, those are meant to be revolving around the earth. Oh shucks. Maybe Copernicus was right and actually maybe we're not the center of even our own solar system. Maybe the sun's the center of our solar system. That freaked the church out. He was pulled in front of the Spanish Inquisition and they said to him, you must recant. You are tearing apart Psalm 104, which said the, the, the earth is on a firm, fixed, stable, and unmovable foundation. And he, he did, re- well, he spent the rest of his life in quite pleasant house arrest. He had to recant openly, but he said this very interesting thing under his, his breath which is, I've observed it, how can it be wrong? So that was very interesting. So theologians have got it wrong. What about scientists? Next slide, please. This is an absolutely wonderful YouTube uh, video. If you ever get the chance to watch this one, it's an hour and 15 minutes, very well spent. And it's two of the, the really great brains at the University of Oxford. One of them is the world's leading New Atheist, a guy by the name of Richard Dawkins. And and Richard Dawkins is an aggressive New Atheist. Um, In a book that he wrote, um, if you go back to – oh, no, don't worry. Don't worry to go back. He basically said it's called The God Delusion. And he basically says, if a single person has a delusion, we call them insane. If a group of people have a delusion, we call it religion. Okay, that's pretty tough stuff. Now, John Lennox, who is debating with him, wrote another wonderful book called God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? And he basically takes apart all of Richard Dawkins' uh, arguments And he makes it very plain that our Christian faith is not based on myth and fable. It is based on hard evidence. And he sets out all of the evidence for you. So if ever you really want to study this, I strongly recommend John Lennox. Now, we said scientists have made big errors. Well, this is one by Richard Dawkins. Follow the logic there. In response to John Lennox, John Lennox who is coming with grace and humility, the stuff that the apostle Peter said, Richard Dawkins, everything does look designed. It's not designed. It just looks very designed. Okay. The, those of you who follow logic, there's not a lot of logic in there. And that's the world's probably leading new atheist who is an emeritus professor of evolutionary biology at the University of Oxford. Okay. So I think, next slide, that science and the Bible are not in conflict. I cannot find conflict between science and the Bible. They answer slightly different questions. Science answers the how question, the mechanism, how things work. The Bible answers the why question. Why is it the way it is? Why did God create it the way it is? But the two beautifully fit together. All right. So we've answered the first question. Science and the Bible, science and God, friends or foe, they're friends. Next, The next question. So the next question goes to the whole question of can we see God in cosmology? If we look at the way that the universe has developed, has evolved, is God's fingerprint there? And I've got good news for you. Next next slide, please. Arno Penzias um, is an extraordinary bloke. And, And actually, the Nobel Prize is sort of the highest accolade you can get as a scientist. And some of you said, might have thought earlier when I said, well, I'm, a, I'm a, a Christian and I'm a scientist. Notice I didn't say a Christian scientist. I'm a Christian and a scientist. Um, you might have said, that's a bit unusual. But actually, it's not that unusual. If you look back on the winners of the Nobel Prize in physics over the last 100 years, seven out of every 10 have been Christians. Wow. So physicists actually do see God in creation. And this guy is probably the, really the, probably the brightest physicist who's still living on our planet, Arno Penzias. He got the Nobel Prize in physics in 1978. And he got it because he actually found the starting point of creation, the creation point, the Big Bang. He found evidence of the cosmic microwave radiation, described it and uh, was awarded a Nobel Prize for that work. But he said an amazing thing. Astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing, delicately balanced to provide exactly the conditions required to support life. In the absence of an absurdly improbable accident, the observations of modern science suggest an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. So the greatest living physicist on our planet sees creation and in cosmology. Now you might argue with him, well there what what about chance? He said it could be chance. It's either chance or a designer. So let's have a look at that. Next slide please there really are only four possibilities for how our universe came into being the one is chance and we're going to explore that quickly. The other is the multiverse, which is tricky. That's years of study, but we'll do it in about one and a half minutes. An impersonal creator, so a distant God, a supernatural creator, who then has nothing to do with the planet or with us, or a personal creator. Those are the only four options that we got. Let's go with chance. Next slide, please. So probability, and I'm not going to go into probability too much for a Sunday night, but this is a nice piece of work, and if you take a photo of that that, uh, URL there and have a look at it later, just a universe, just to have the features that could possibly support our solar system, a sun with our solar system in it, there are 140 specific features that have to be picture perfect, perfect in measure, perfect in their ratio with other measures, and they can be grouped in four categories. And the first category is subatomic particles, okay? And we're not going to go... And you all know about protons, neutrons and electrons, and we could go into quarks and neutrinos and muons and into... Higgs bosons and the and the rest, and we won't. But they all have a specific mass, a specific charge, and a specific relationship with the other subatomic particles. Each of them is perfect; they're fine-tuned to perfection, both in their charge and in their mass, to allow atoms to actually hold together and not to fall apart. Then we have the four forces, the four basic forces of physics electromagnetism, strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, and gravity. Not only are they perfect in their measure, but they are absolutely perfect in the way that they actually relate to each other. They're the only reason that we have stars, that they actually came together and that they don't just blow apart. That's why we've actually got the right balance of chemicals. And then they are measures of the structure of our universe, the speed of light, the expansion, what they call the Hubble constant, the way that our universe is expanding. And then there's still the dimensions of space and time. And if you put them all together, there are, 140, there are more than 140 that just give us a fine-tuned universe that could support life. There are another 402 to have maybe life on the planet Earth, a Goldilocks planet, okay? I'm not going to go into those. You can put a probability of chance on every one of those 140 features. And then you can multiply them together and take into account possible uh, relationships between them. And you come out, what is the chance? What is the probability that our universe and just those 140 features actually came about just by chance? And it's one followed by 120 zeros okay? that's a that, that has a wonderful, that particular number has a wonderful, uh, it's called a hundred trillion Googles, okay? So one chance in a hundred trillion Googles. Now that's a big number and that's quite frightening. So let's try and make it a bit more real. Dave Durham standing in front of you is full of atoms. Some of you might say he's full of hot air, but he's actually full of atoms. And in him, there are eight octillion atoms, eight times 10 to the 27 atoms in me. That's more atoms in me than there are stars that we believe in the universe. That's amazing. So that's the number of atoms that are in me. How many atoms are there in the universe? That's one in 10 to the power 60. That's a lot of atoms. Now, to show you how, how small that chance is that our universe came into being by chance, if I take a hair of mine, take a molecule out of that hair and harvest an atom, which none of us can see, but it's very, very tiny, and I take that atom and I throw it into all the atoms in the universe and I mix them all up together, beautifully mixed, and close my eyes, I couldn't do it, God will have to do it, and pick that one atom, and I pick the atom that I threw in from my hair, and then I throw it back in again and mix the whole, all the atoms in the universe again and pick the same atom out the second time, that's the likelihood that our universe could come into being by chance. No. Okay, next slide, please. And that's why Hugh Ross, who's an astrophysicist from Canada, said the creator invested a great deal. A universe of 50 billion trillion stars plus 100 times more matter all fine tuned to mind-boggling precision for us. He just it blew his mind. And it should blow our minds. It's not chance. So what's the next option? This is a problem, the next slide, a problem for atheists. Because atheist physics, atheist mathematicians like this, Very brilliant guy, Stephen Hawken, who died just uh, a couple of years, four years ago, saw the design. Look what he said. I see design. But how do I explain it if there's no designer? Ah, how can we make it possible that that chance isn't so remote? Well, if we've got an infinite number of universes a multiverse or a near-infinitive number of universes, one of them, because they're infinite, will be perfect. Okay, that's the multiverse in a snapshot. One of them will have the, the right elements, the right relationships, the right subatomic particles and, and to allow life to occur. So that's the way we can explain it, a multiverse. Now I must point out, the multiverse cannot be proven. The multiverse has got some major mathematical problems. It has some even bigger philosophical problems and some terrible ethics problems, okay? But it is what atheists, uh, scientists are still hanging on to, the few that still exist. They see design. They can't deny design. So maybe it's a multiverse. Let me give you a little logic which you can maybe use, which I like, so without the mathematics, that, that can give it a hard time. If there are an infinite number of universes, and every possible universe exists, because God is a possible option in at least one universe, God must exist in one universe. But God, because he's God, is omnipresent. So if he's omnipresent, he must exist in every universe. Therefore, there's only one universe. Okay. So follow the logic on that, write it down when you get home, Um, but the multiverse has some real problems. Let's go on to a person who really thought deeply, the next slide, about science, this this wonderful old fellow, Albert Einstein. And he was honest. He saw the pattern. He saw the amazing fine-tuning, but he couldn't grasp God. And that's a real tragedy, isn't it? And that's sometimes the block. We still need the Holy Spirit. You can present all the evidence, but without without the Holy Spirit moving, you may not get the fact that God, the great designer, wants a relationship with us. And so Einstein said there's some supernatural power. There's a God maybe out there that made all of this, but he has no personal relationship with us. And so that leaves us with only one option. Isaac Newton, the next slide, I think nailed it. Isaac Newton said, This beautiful system could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as the Lord over all, and on account of his dominion, he is worthy to be called Lord God. A personal God, personal God that created this magnificent universe. But why did he do it? Next slide, please. He really did it. And that's, isn't that beautiful? A cartwheel galaxy, two galaxies that have smashed into each other and are like a ripple on the pond. You can see the rings spreading out. Isn't that just amazing? Uh, that's 500 million. A light years away from us. But that's why God, David knew exactly why God, and it's quoted in Romans by the writer in, in Romans, through everything God made, he, want us, he wanted us to see his invisible qualities. That's why he's put all the evidence out there. He's left a wonderful, wonderful trail of evidence because he wants to draw us to himself. That's the only reason why. And then the last slide a great philosopher, great scientist. Um, every time you go to the bowser and fill up the tank or fill up your, your uh, the pressure in your tyres, you in the old days anyway, Killer Pascals. This is Blaise Pascal. He worked on vacuums and he worked on barometric pressure and he developed probability theory. So a smart guy. And he wrote a book called Pensies, which is just thoughts, and he nailed what we sometimes in Christian circles talk about, that God-shaped vacuum. And this is where it actually comes from. He said, God has placed a God-shaped abyss in each one of us that cannot be satisfied except by him. So I think, I hope I've answered the question tonight. God and science, friends or foes, they're friends, I believe strongly that the evidence is out there in the design of our universe of a God who has created it all and a God who has done it, left spectacular, spectacular evidence simply to draw us to himself. Thank you very much, Jordan. Thank you for listening. We hope you have enjoyed this message. For more information, please visit macroylifechurch.com.au.